Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report for October 16th, 2023. I'm Phil Adler. As investors, we can sometimes be sidetracked by news events that seem huge at the time they happen. Many times, we can make wiser decisions by stepping back to survey the bigger picture. Confluence market strategist Patrick Fearon Hernandez joins us today to help us do just that. Patrick, the method you use in your latest report to achieve a, a broader perspective is to search for a suitable name that will accurately describe the new era the world is living in. How can this exercise help investors? Hi, Phil. First, thanks for having me on the podcast. To answer your question, I think you need to start from the simple point that investors and investment strategists need to base their decisions on an accurate understanding of the global investment environment. Well, believe it or not, psychologists have shown that the labels we use to describe something or a situation affect how we view it. As the U.S.-China rivalry has worsened, for example, we've noticed that a lot of people have a kind of knee-jerk reaction and call it the new Cold War. I have to admit, we ourselves uh, fell into that trap a couple of times previously when the rivalry was just taking off. The problem is that if someone uses that term, there's a risk that he or she will assume that the U.S.-China competition will play out just like the U.S.-Soviet competition. That would be an error because the new U.S.-China competition and the world it's spawning will be different from anything we've seen before. What broad outline can define the era that we're entering? Well, our view is that the 30-year post-Cold War period with its broad deglobalization is now coming to an end. Western business elites and some others are still trying to preserve that period since they have a strong financial interest in it, but we don't think they'll be successful. The new era that's dawning is likely to be marked by sharpening geopolitical and economic tensions between China and its bloc and the U.S. and its bloc. After many decades of being dominated by the U.S. and the rest of the West, we think the Chinese and the Russians and others in their camp have decided that now's the time to reclaim their proud history and assert themselves globally. Leaders like Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Putin seem to be operating on a deep, immutable motivation to rebuild their country's status, to reclaim their sense of independence and agency, and to knock the U.S. and the West down a notch or two. The result will be that the China-Russia bloc is likely to keep working to build its military, economic, and diplomatic power and use that power to weaken the U.S. and the West. We see that in places like China's effort to extend its sovereignty over Taiwan and the South China Sea and Russia's effort to take over Ukraine. The response will be for the U.S. and the West to try to rebuild their military strength and take other steps to protect themselves, like clamping down on trade and investment with the China-Russia bloc. It'll be a world of increasing acrimony and tension. So would you say there is a stark difference between the era that has come to an end and the one that we're beginning to experience now? 
We think the difference will be stark indeed, and probably much more stark than people realize. We've already been writing a lot about the changes coming to the U.S. and the West. You know, much bigger defense budgets, decoupling our strategic industries from China, and rejiggering our global supply chains, bringing factory production back home, and reindustrializing the domestic economy. All those factors will help produce a new investment environment where inflation and interest rates are higher and more volatile than in the past, where labor probably has more leverage, and where profit margins may fall back down toward their traditional levels. Patrick, in your report, you discussed the pros and cons of several candidates we might use to give the new era a name. And and the first potential label you discuss is Cold War, too. You mentioned that a moment ago. And this label brings to mind the arms race, certain countries that are closed off from the rest of the world, a clear dividing line between so-called communist nations and democracies, all the stuff that spy movies are made of. How does this potential label fit the new era and how might it fall short? Well, since we're also used to talking about World War I and World War II, referring to the Cold War II or the Second Cold War would feel easy and familiar. The term would also capture the fact that some aspects of the original Cold War will probably apply to the new conflict, such as a scary arms race, intense espionage, and perhaps regional proxy wars involving countries allied to the U.S. or to China. On the other hand, we fear that the term would be misleading in several ways. For one thing, it may overstate the role of ideology in today's conflict. More importantly, it says nothing about the fact that China is much more integrated into the world economy than the Soviet Union ever was. It also is much more advanced technologically, and that's where a lot of the friction is with the U.S. and the West. We think it's better to move to a term that isn't so close to the Cold War terminology of the past. The next potential label is strategic competition. This one almost seems like it was uh, dreamed up in a corporate boardroom. How useful is this candidate? Well, actually, it's even worse than that. Rather than a corporate boardroom, it was hatched in an official Defense Department document called the U.S. National Security Strategy of 2017. So yes, well, it's technically correct and therefore often used by national security professionals, it does feel a bit cold and sterile. For everyday citizens and investors, it just doesn't seem to capture the important nuances of the new era. In our view, we can do better. The next suggestion is the East-West rivalry. With the emphasis on, on the competition with China, this one seems right on at first. Where does this one possibly miss the boat? Well, a big problem with this term is that it may simply be too simple, in that the rival camps aren't strictly divided geographically. For example, the U.S.-led bloc includes quintessentially eastern countries like Japan and South Korea, as well as Pacific powers with important trade ties to China, including Australia and New Zealand. The China-Russia bloc also includes many countries in Africa and within other non-eastern parts of the global south. The term rivalry also doesn't really capture how sharp the competition is getting or how sharp it could get. Next, we consider the rise of the colonized. 
this seems like a, a fresh and pretty accurate way to describe the evolution that is taking place. Is it? Well, I think this term does a good job of capturing what I mentioned earlier, that President Xi and many other leaders in the China-Russia bloc are at least partly motivated by the humiliations their countries suffered under Western colonialism in the past and by their more recent economic revival. On the other hand, the term isn't perfectly accurate since some members of the China-Russia bloc weren't recently colonized. For example, while Russia certainly has suffered losses of some Western territories in the past, it's often won them back. At no time in the last several centuries was Russia completely colonized, as many other emerging markets were. President Putin's grievances certainly reflect his feeling that Russian interests have been ignored or violated by the West, but that's not necessarily colonialism. Indeed, Imperial Russia and the Russian Russia-dominated Soviet Union themselves long exercised something like colonial power over much of Central Asia, Southeastern and Eastern Europe, and Central Europe. In sum, this term seems to give the revisionist powers a bit more credit than they really deserve. Finally, there's simply the China challenge. This one is your favorite? Indeed it is. The term definitely isn't perfect, since it risks overstating China's role in its bloc. For example, it's not entirely clear that Beijing could have stopped Putin from launching his invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Alliances can be much more chaotic than they appear. China simply doesn't have perfect control over its evolving bloc. Nevertheless, I personally like the way this term emphasizes China's key role in challenging U.S. hegemony and Western dominance in world affairs. It's also consistent with the fact that many of the countries in the China-Russia bloc saw their economic growth accelerate in the first decade of the 21st century because of China's galloping growth at the time. China's voracious demand for energy and minerals and other commodities sparked output increases and raised the status of many countries in its own bloc and beyond. In all kinds of ways, China has been the source, the motivation, and the inspiration for the way its overall bloc has started to assert itself against the U.S. and the West. And the decisions that China makes going forward will be instrumental in determining how the new era plays out. Patrick, considering all these candidates brings me to the conclusion that while none might be perfect, they do describe a world where the United States is less dominant and adversaries are becoming stronger. Am I right to feel this way? Yes. It's not a pretty picture, and it's not fun to contemplate it, but that's the reality. If anything, it was the previous post-Cold War period, with its apparent world peace and globalization, that was the anomaly in world history. In many ways, the world's going back to the type of global competition and disorder that has prevailed in much of the past. Patrick, what are some of the guardrails that are emerging that we investors should be aware of as we seek opportunities? 
Well, I certainly understand that what I've just described can sound scary and pessimistic. However, investors should understand that it's important to understand the the risk that they face so that they can take steps to address those risks. For example, we've written extensively that as tensions worsen between the U.S. and the China-Russia bloc, there will be increasing risk that one side or the other will suddenly clamp down further on international trade or international investment, technology, or even travel flows. So one thing investors probably need to consider is the risk of investing in companies from the China-Russia bloc or in companies that depend on doing business with that bloc. We also think that the economic implications of the new world with its higher inflation and interest rates will be negative for bonds. We therefore think investors should consider lightening up on their bond exposure. You say this new investment world should be long-term positive for commodities. How are commodities represented within Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Recommendations? Yeah, in the coming years, we do think commodities will be well-placed. Historically, that's often been the case during times of international tension. And in this situation in particular, when you consider that the China-Russia bloc consists largely of commodity producers, it seems likely that as those countries work to weaken the U.S. and its bloc, they'll weaponize their commodity resources. We think they'll be prone to holding back supplies and imposing embargoes, just as Russia did to Western Europe after launching its invasion of Ukraine. Nevertheless, commodities are still at risk of a pullback if the economy goes into recession, and we still think that's a distinct possibility in the coming quarters. Therefore, we're only emphasizing gold in our strategies right now. Once we get through the likely recession, we'll probably be looking for a good entry point into the broader commodity space again. Finally, looking long term, Patrick, how do equities measure up against commodities? Well, going forward, we still think equities will likely provide the best sustained returns. It's true that the higher inflation and interest rates of the future will probably reduce valuations, leading to lower price earnings ratios, while less efficient supply chains will probably reduce margins back toward their historical averages from today's really high levels. Nevertheless, especially after a period of adjustment, we think U.S. and Western companies will be able to adjust and uh, keep their uh, profits growing again. And besides, remember that there will be opportunities in the continuing tensions of the new era. In time of conflict, you can definitely find good investment opportunities. And going forward, we think a lot of those opportunities will be in areas like broad industrials, traditional defense industry, cybersecurity and other military-related technologies, energy, and mining. Thank you, Patrick. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 